Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, the thoughts and opinions that are expressed on this show are not the thoughts and opinions of Howard County Community College. And insofar as we have discussions about legal matters, it's not intended to provide legal advice. If you have an individual legal need, it's imperative that you actually go see a lawyer and speak to them and acquaint them with the facts of your situation. We have a rare privilege today on Everyday Law. We have the Honorable Lynn Battaglia on the show. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you very much, Pat. Judge Battaglia has quite a career and is an exemplar of the Howard <laughs> County legal community. She has served as the United States Attorney for Maryland, and she has also served on the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, for a good long time, deciding a great many very important cases. And now, as I understand it, has undertaken another course of study as well. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yes, I've been at Hopkins for the last year, and I'll graduate hopefully in June of 2019 with my clinical mental health counseling degree. And then I have to do internship after internship, but hopefully I'll be licensed as a clinician in the mental health field. Is that something that you have always aspired to do, or is that a recent development? No, it's really something I've always wanted to do. And this gave, in retirement, with the opportunity to be a part-time job, gave me the opportunity in terms of time and resources. Was it your experience in the legal world that sent you in this direction, or is it something that existed before that? It really is something that's existed for me all of my life, because in terms of my personal experience, you know, I had experience with alcoholism in my family and mental health issues in my larger family. So it always was important to me that I understood what was going on. And so that was the motive for going into this. So what took you into the law instead? Well, when I was in high school, I looked around and I saw that there were men leading my small community. It was Silver Creek, New York. Okay. And I was interested in politics as I've been my whole life. And so I said, wait a minute. Um, I can't change my sex because at that time there weren't many women who were in political life. But I did look further and I found out that the men were lawyers. And so I decided uh, that I was going to go to law school then. And it's in my yearbook for my senior year. I did a frolic and a detour before I went to law school because I worked on my doctorate in political science at Georgetown beforehand. But that was, as I said, a frolic and detour, and I eventually went to law school. That's a fascinating course. Right. It is, I have to say. I've been fortunate that I've always been intrigued with education. I've not only been a student a long time, but I've been a a teacher. So, and I love being a lawyer. So I've been fortunate. And so your present day teaching is that at the University of Maryland Law School? I've been teaching at the University of Maryland Law School and the University of Baltimore Law School. The latter, uh, since my son and daughter-in-law both graduated. Oh, congratulations. So they met in Byron Warkin's. For those of you who I are listening, Byron. you know, Byron <laughs> Warkin is, has been a fixture at the University of Baltimore Law School and has been a wonderful addition to the legal community. Well, Scott, my son, and his wife met 
in a class. They were sitting next to each other, and it was in Byron Morkin's class. Kismet. Yes, and I always say to him that he has to help support my grandchildren, but I haven't seen a penny, <laughs> not a penny. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. So tell us a little bit about the early days of your legal career. Did you find that there were lots of other women working around you with similar aspirations? Well, the interesting thing is that there weren't many women working around me with lots of aspirations because I graduated in 1974, and I don't know whether you know this, but 1974 turned out to be the year when there were more women who were admitted to the Maryland Bar that year than any other year since 1902 when women had been first admitted. So but there weren't many women. So thereafter, every year after 1974, there have been more and more women. But I found that uh, women were really criticized for going to law school during that time because, as uh, you may or may not know, they were criticized for taking what was reputedly the spots um, that men should have had in a number of... Uh, people who were veterans of Vietnam felt that women were taking their spots. So there's a story about that. I was fortunate enough to edit a book called Finding Justice, which is a history of women lawyers in Maryland. And Katie O'Farrell Friedman, who is a circuit court judge, she's now a senior judge in Baltimore City, tells the story of people being very critical of her taking the spots of men who should have been there. So it was a time when there weren't many women, but the women who were there certainly had stories about why they wanted to become lawyers, just like I wanted to do that, because I thought that it was an opportunity for me to aspire to higher office, to, to have some opportunity to have some level of power and authority that very few women had at that time. So you found it empowering. I did. So what, did. Was, what was your first job out of law school? My first job was at Sems Bowen and Sems, which is now a larger firm than obviously um, I joined in 1974. I had clerk there uh, for the summer, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen to be there. I was the only woman at the downtown office. There had been a woman who went from being a paralegal to a a lawyer at the Towson office, but I was the first woman at the downtown office. How was that experience? Well, it was interesting sometimes disappointing, sometimes wonderful. Um, The disappointments came because of sort of the notions of how women should be. I was pregnant with my son when I was there, and some of the attitudes about pregnancy were really archaic, you know, because the concept of pregnancy as a disability was seen as the things I couldn't do, like people were concerned I needed to sit down all the time when I'd be in court, or I couldn't fly on a plane to do depositions and all of that, and, you know, I had to dispel that. Um, So that was a little disappointing, because that felt like archaic notions. Sure. And then I had to deal with attorneys on the other side who really didn't know how to deal with a female attorney and felt 
sometimes I felt that they were being really pretentious and condescending. But, you know, I really felt empowered by the people with whom I worked at the firm because I knew that I didn't have to take that from another attorney. So I felt really supported by the likes of Mac Plant, who is still practicing law in in Baltimore and a wonderful supporter. I also worked for Norman Ramsey, who is George. Yes. And he became a federal district court judge. And each of them really believed in the ability of a woman to be not only a good lawyer, but a litigator and a contributor to the legal community. So I was very fortunate. It has been a fascinating evolution across. I've been practicing 36 years, and the the arc of my career has seen so many women much more involved in things and the bench and the bar. And and I don't really perceive that, maybe this is my own bias, but that anybody any longer perceives women are incapable of doing anything in the law, you know? Well, I think that it depends upon the age of the woman, honestly. Okay. Because I do think that younger women who are lawyers are still perceived as less than by some older male lawyers. And so they they tell me, because I obviously um, can't experience that because I've reached whatever success that I'm going to reach in the law, Um, They tell me that they still have problems with some condescension, overbearingness on the part of older male attorneys. Interesting. Um, And I've been fortunate because I've been able to interact with a lot of um, young lawyers because as a judge, I've always had law clerks. And so I keep close to my law clerks because they not only keep me young, but I'm able to answer questions like what you just asked me, you know, because they tell me that sometimes they have problems. Is there anything that you've seen that reduces those problems? I think that um, if a woman recognizes that the condescension and the pretension comes from a lack of education and can educate the male attorney well, um, and that means actually speaking up and saying, you know, I really feel like you're being condescending or pretentious or whatever, and feels empowered to do that. I've always found that that's been very helpful in terms of the treatment as I've developed as a lawyer, it's um, when there's either not saying anything, that's not helpful, sure, or instantly um, establishing a hostile environment both ways that we don't get to the crux of uh, the problem. Now, there are going to be people who are never going to change, uh, and... I don't have an answer for that, but I've always felt that if I really called it out um, when I was feeling it, that it really worked for me. So Sems Bone and Sems was, at least in the modern era, an insurance defense firm. Was that predominantly what you did in that era? Well, it's interesting because I was hired for the Estates and Trust Department because, as you may or may not know, there were not many women who were litigators at that time. True. As it evolved, and this was interesting because I really 
came to believe that I wasn't going to be an attorney unless I did litigation. And at the same time, the people who were clients of Sims, like the Lever Brothers and the Mack Trucks and all of that, realized that the market was going, was moving towards women. So they wanted to have women on their teams um, to really help with marketing to whatever they were doing. Sure. But also, the um, at the time that I came of age, the Equal Rights Amendment was coming up, as well as the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. There were many more suits against companies dealing with failure to hire, working conditions, Title sexual IX harassment, too. Title IX, all of that. So they really realized that they needed to have a woman on their team. So in many respects, just sort of our capitalist system motivated your employers and their clients to move in the direction of greater gender equality. Yes, and probably that's true for any time, because you know that one of the problems, I think, for women these days is that they're not serving on as many boards, profit boards. Right. Nonprofits are always have a lot of women on sure. it. But um, profit boards uh, need to have more women. And that's going to be driven by women who are buying or men who are buying who want to see more women at the helm. So you left Sam Bowen, Sam's Bowen and Sam's some, at some point in time, and what did you do next? I became an assistant United States attorney for the District of Maryland, which is was at that time all of the state of Maryland in Baltimore. So I was hired by Timmy Baker, who was an appoint, appointee of uh, President Carter. Okay. And I did worked in that area. I did civil as well as criminal cases. So did you find that the government had, you know, sort of more women on a per capita basis working in it or than yes. the private employers? Absolutely. Because there was much more, especially, as you know, Jimmy Carter came in. He had a, his wife was very involved with him. Rosalind was a, was a big proponent of women, you know, entering the workforce. And he was um, also. So he encouraged the U.S. attorneys who he hired to hire more women. And Timmy Baker was definitely committed to that. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so it, it was. And I think at that time there were more female assistant United States attorneys hired than at any other time in the future in the past. And that was approximately when? I was hired uh, 1978, and I stayed until 1982. Okay. And at some point in time, you actually became the U.S. Attorney for I the did. State of Maryland. I did. That had to be an exciting development. It was wonderful. I had been the Chief of Staff for Barbara Mikulski from 91 to 93. and We could use her now. I know, I know. I, as a matter of fact, I just saw her recently, and she is over at Hopkins doing good work in educating people to be activists. So it was a tremendous loss to the uh, Hill when Senator Mikulski left. But I have to say, I'm really glad that she's out there creating new activists because we really need millennials as well as the next generation to really take the, the helm of being activists now. 
So I went to, to work for her, and uh, she was supportive of my becoming U.S. attorney. And, of course, I had the background. Sure. And uh, she and Senator Sarbanes uh, worked for my appointment by then uh, President Clinton. And he recommended my appointment, and it was ratified by the United States Senate, and in 1993, I became the first woman who had been appointed by the president to be U.S. attorney in Maryland. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was really a wonderful job. So what did you like best about that job? Um, I really liked getting out into the communities. I liked working with the communities in Maryland. Um, President Clinton and Attorney General Reno were great community activists. And so there was money that was funneled into the communities through the Community Resources, Community Reinvestment Acts, uh, to really create uh, more opportunities for our youth, as well as the older generation, to really uh, develop communities where there were not communities sure and to establish um, even p- police uh, leagues you know uh, for sports athletics. and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And, and where there hadn't been money before so I really and I loved working with um, the various police departments in doing that and um, and also with our federal law enforcement so I really felt like it was a very meaningful job for me. So how much supervision of employees was involved in all of it? <laughs> uh, too much. Um, and not, I, any is too much because, you know, when you're doing um, supervision of employees, you're not only dealing with encouraging people to be more productive, but you're also doing discipline of, law- of not only lawyers, but of staff. And that was the worst part of my job. I can understand that. So at some point in time, you matriculated to the highest court in the state of Maryland, the Court of Appeals. I did. And when was that? That was, let me see, it was 2001, January 26th of 2001. I left on that day from being U.S. attorney, and I became a judge on the Court of Appeals after having been appointed to that position by uh, Governor Glenn Denning. Now... You know, we were talking earlier about the origins of your interest in being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Had it ever occurred to you that you would do something like be the U.S. attorney or be on the highest court of the state or anything of that nature? Well, when I became, going back to your question about uh, when I became an assistant United States attorney, I knew after I had um, been four years long in the tooth as as an assistant United States attorney that I wanted to be U.S. attorney. Okay. Because I just, it is a wonderful job in terms of being a litigator because you can still litigate cases. Sure. But you get to make such a difference in terms of federal law enforcement in a state. It's... um, you know, it's it's just a fantastic job. Just to say here, you know, there are so many uh, U.S. attorneys have gone on to even bigger and better things. Uh, Mary Jo White became the head of the SEC. Sure. And uh, Janet Napolitano is, of course, uh, has done really wonderful things and now has uh, been the head of a university system. Doug Jones, who's running in Alabama, was U.S. attorney. Um, Sheldon Whitehouse was a U.S. Senator. attorney. And now he's a senator. Uh, Eric Holder was a U.S. attorney with me. So you really, it certainly opens a lot of 
uh, venues, but you you really get to deal with uh, the best and brightest uh, when you're a U.S. attorney. So when are we going to hear about the Battaglia for president camp? Oh, yeah, right. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I you know I did think about running for attorney general in Maryland at one time. Sure. But I have to say, you know, raising money and getting out there and actually asking people for money is uh, a really daunting aspect of running for office. It also seems like anything that you've ever done in your life, even if innocent, can be portrayed in a manner that's just so unsavory these days that it's sad. Well, it is. And you have to be really thick-skinned to get through that type of a thing. And it's hard. So was there any kind of the campaigning associated with becoming U.S. attorney or getting on the Court of Appeals or anything? I think it's more in terms of the Court of Appeals. Okay. uh, Because when you're on the Court of Appeals or when you're seeking appointment there, you have to go through the Judicial Nominating Commission. Sure. So you have to be concerned about going through all of the bar associations and seeking their endorsement and then going through the Judicial Nominating Commission. And then you have to seek uh, the appointment through the political realm. So you have to talk to people in politics. And remember, I had been U.S. attorney, so I prosecuted people in politics. Sure, they were uh, thrilled. And they were, they were not very thrilled. And we did a lot of uh, prosecution of campaign finance issues. So there were a lot of people who were less than enthusiastic about my being U.S. attorney, about being a court of appeals judge after being U.S. attorney. But you overcame that somehow. I did. I did. I was hopeful, as I said to people, that they would uh, look to my abilities and my character and uh, be supportive. So what was your favorite thing about being in the Court of Appeals? You know, there were so many favorite things. I loved oral argument. I loved being able to have that interaction about cases. I loved putting the pieces together to make, uh, when you're drafting an opinion, opinions before the Court of Appeals are very intricate, generally. They're very complex. And so you really have to be curious, and you have to look at the origins of the law. And, um, you know, I had a lot of cases where I had to go back to old English law and look at that because as an American colony, we took... Old English law is the beginning of our, you know, basically our law. So I had to go back to old English law, or I had to look back at what the law was like in the 1800s. And I found that fascinating to just sort of look at and try to look at what was going on and what was the basis for that. And I also loved having law clerks. I really loved working with my law clerks. Having young, intelligent people infuse your life is always a wonderful thing. I've had a it lot is. of law clerks, and so many of them have gone on to great success that, you know, it's it's a wonderful gift. It is, and it's a gift that keeps on giving because I always say to them, you know, uh, you know they're going to be responsible for me as I get older. <laughs> it's a very good point. I hope you've done a good job with your clerks. Liz. I hope so, too. We'll see. 
So had you done appellate argument before going to the Court of Appeals? I had only done appellate argument in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. When I say only, I shouldn't say it that way, but it really wasn't in the state system. I had, when I was at the AG's office, at the Attorney General's office, with Joe Curran, I had prepared him for arguments, and I had prepared other attorneys for arguments because I was one of what was called a principal counsel. I led a white-collar group, an environmental crimes group for him, criminal investigations. So I had the opportunity to prepare him and others for arguments before the Court of Appeals in the Court of Special Appeals. But as a federal prosecutor, I did a lot of arguments before the Fourth Circuit. And ostensibly, it was the same type of thing, just in a different venue. It's a wonderful place wherever they come down and shake your hand. Oh, yes. The, I, it's one of the quaint traditions of the Fourth Circuit <laughs> that I like best. Yes. And, you know, at the Court of Appeals, we had thought about doing that, too, except it's more difficult with seven people coming on and off the bench than it is with three in a panel on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. I have found in the Fourth Circuit that if you're the appellant, you're in good shape. And if you're the appellee, you're largely doomed. But everybody is so genteel and polite and friendly and kind that even when you're on the losing end of things, it doesn't seem as bad as it might. Yes, that's true. I I, I found them to be very civil and uh, very kind, especially to new um, orders. So was there any particular case or group of cases that seems to you to have been the most important ones you considered while in the Court of Appeals? Well, there are cases that I think of that I remember for me that were important uh, because of the development of the law. Okay. I mean, on just one aspect uh, was uh, we had a case that I wrote about whether uh, a landlord could evict someone from his you know, with a summary eviction, which is just a quicker, quicker eviction sure. process. And um, there was a landlord in the case who tried to evict a uh, tenant, um, and she had been living in terrible circumstances, so she withheld her rent. And so he was trying to do that, and um, she brought up the fact that he had not been licensed. This was in Anne Arundel County, where he had to been licensed. So I was able to write an opinion saying that he couldn't summary, summarily evict her because he didn't have clean hands. He couldn't go into court and ask for the from my viewpoint, the highest form of relief where you can just sort of throw someone out on this on the street when he hadn't sought licensure. And the importance of that is is that a landlord needs to seek licensure because the premises has to be inspected. And that inspection happens before licensure and during licensure. He could really treat her very badly because he hadn't sought licensure. So he couldn't go into court and say, wait a minute, I'm going to throw you out without having clean hands, meaning being licensed. It's a wonderful, equitable concept, the, yes. the clean hands doctrine, that yes. you kind of have to be okay before you can come in. Right, right. So what do you intend to do with your new education that you are acquiring now that you've served as U.S. attorney <laughs> and as a judge and have done so many things in your career? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. People ask me that all the time. I'm going to be doing a practicum at Hopkins at Bayview in the spring where I hope to work with um, our seniors, uh, initially with people who have been um, brain damaged through trauma or um, have been in dementia. I uh, expect, hopefully, to stay at Hopkins during my my initial internship uh, in 2018 and 2019, and I'd like to continue to work with seniors because what I've found is that it's a population that um, is going to be underserved because there are so few people who are in the field that I'm going into in clinical mental health counseling who are there to really uh, serve that population. Uh, Beyond that, I don't know. I'm hopeful that it'll just be sort of an organic process. I'll I'll have more of an internship to do. So... um, I'm putting my faith in the process to see what comes up for me. I just know that there's a population or that there's something there for me that I need to do uh, because I really want to continue to make a difference in my life and give it meaning. That's the most important thing for me. It seems to me that that is a wonderful aspiration. And on that note, I'd like to thank you, Lynn, for appearing today on Everyday Law. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope that we will lure you here again. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.